You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. Humanity has looked to the stars as a source of a coming alien invasion, when in fact, it's a transdimensional portal at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean that will threaten our very existence in the very near future. Massive aliens codenamed Keiju will erupt from this portal and lay waste entire cities. None of the Earth's weapons will hurt these towering beasts. Our military forces will be powerless to stop them as they topple skyscrapers as a child does Lego constructions. Having little hope to survive independently, the world's countries will work together finally to develop massive mechanical robots codenamed Jaegers, which is German for hunters. Through torturous testing, it will be realized that these robots cannot be piloted by single pilots. These test pilots will suffer greatly, their minds taking excessive stress as the pilots attempt to mind meld with the giant construction's neural networks. Scientists will discover that for each of these Jaegers, two pilots will be needed, splitting the mental load so that they may thus vanquish the Keiju. Sounds like an incredible movie, doesn't it? Well, it might have been. Pacific Rim rips through this entire blockbuster in the first few minutes of the movie, deciding instead to show us what happens after these events. Director and co-writer Guillermo del Toro has said that he wanted to create an operatic monster movie which shows that humanity has to work together in order to overcome adversity. However, some have criticized the movie as having so little substance that this comes off feeling formulaic rather than inspirational. The movie's Metacritic score is 64% and its user score hangs at 7.6 of 10, while its Rotten Tomatoes rating is 72%. Take from that what you will. Some reviewers love this movie. Game designers such as Hideo Kojima praised the movie, saying they never thought they'd be able to see such a film in their lifetime, whereas other reviewers stated the movie felt too much like a game, leading to an inevitable boss fight at the end. Tonight we tackle Pacific Rim. Now tell me about your feels for this movie, Vince, because I know you have many. <laughs> I have, oh, so much. So, so many. <laughs> for me, a lot of my love of film comes down to really the the directors like i like really seeing a, a director's particular input and you know there's almost singular vision really coming across in the finished product despite it being work done by hundreds in some cases probably thousands of other people and there's a lot of directors especially in the modern age that i really admire for their technical prowess guys like uh, christopher nolan or alfonso cuaron and i really enjoy their movies on a purely technical and surface level but there's other directors guys like uh quentin tarantino robert rodriguez and takeshi Mike, who they are technically just as good as the other guys but i have more of a connection with them because we have shared interests you know old martial arts movies you know old samurai movies the over-the-top action movies that you got in the 70s and early 80s stuff like that 
And particularly with Guillermo del Toro, it's our shared love of really old school anime as well as the Japanese giant monster movies, the kaiju movies. So when I first heard about this, I was geeking out. I, I, this is pretty much the only thing my friends heard me talk about for about three years <laughs> because uh, del Toro had been signed on to this, I think, early in 2010, but just as a producer and co-writer. Because he had another project he was really focusing his time on, and that was an adaptation for At the Mountains of Madness, the famous H.P. Lovecraft novel. And as much as I would have loved to see Del Toro do Lovecraft, because, I mean, just look at the stuff he's done on, like, Pan's Labyrinth or Hellboy. He can do that big supernatural craziness that I think he could have been a great fit for that film. But Universal wasn't willing to budge on certain things, most notably the rating. They wanted it to be PG-13 and... You can't do that. Sorry. <laughs> so uh, Del Toro walked and then put all of his time and effort here into Pacific Rim. And you see uh, with him taking the director's chair now that uh, he had his time freed up, a lot of that vision he has from both of our childhoods. You know, he's a little older than I am, but you know, we still had the sh- shared interests. And you see a lot of that vision of the classic anime and kaiju roots really came across here for me. But that's not exactly an interest you share, is it? No, it's not necessarily true. I mean, the uh, huge interest in anime and different kind of films. I don't have the same interest in in the kaiju films that you do. And, I mean, that's fine. The As we talk about the movie more tonight, it's going to become obvious. Like, some of the things that I I have a problem with this movie are writing things are casting things and all that the things that you especially love are basically probably the big ass fight scenes of which there are a great many in this Absolutely. movie and overall very well done big ass fight scenes um i say overall because even then there's some things that just kind of got on my nerves but in my opinion and see this is again a difference in terms of what you want the movie to be for you. I still expect a story, even in a popcorn kind of summer blockbuster movie, especially when Del Toro had been talking so much about different things he wanted to do with it kind of thing. I expect there to be more and I expect a cast that I can care about and things like that. And so when the balance isn't even and you have you know, great action scenes, but then, you know, the, the 80 to 90% great action scenes, that's the entirety of the movie. And then 10 to 20%, no, actually 20 is really stretching it, <laughs> of actual story. And that's not, doesn't hold up. It's so little in comparison and it doesn't hold up. Then it really throws the movie for a loop. And, on certain levels, I'm willing to agree with you on that. It's We've had this discussion a lot of times on our comic podcast that when you're doing a certain type of story, there are certain notes that you have to hit to make it seem you know, on point. Like I said, when we talked about samurai stories and, and a lot of sci-fi stuff, that there, there are certain story notes and elements that do need to be in place for it to feel right within that genre. And especially when you're talking kaiju, the story it, across the entire line, like I'm not – singling out any one movie this, across the entire line of the history of filmmaking of you know true kaiju films the overall story has always been a little tenuous and weak but 
when you look back at it, you can kind of pick up on a lot of the, you know, the meta text and the, the, the background story that they were trying to tell, but doesn't necessarily always work as being, you know, spelled out on screen, if you will. Yeah. See, I found that unfortunately, nearly every, you know what, I'm going to take the nearly out <laughs> every aspect of the story was so cliched that you kind of at one point give up on story and just say, just show me giant things battling in water. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Don't worry about these other parts because you're not going to make it better. Oh my God, what the hell is Ron Perlman doing there? Oh, forget it. Just give me robots. Seriously, just forget about it. Because whether you're talking about the two brothers that, and then see, that's the other thing too. this, this idea of you need the two people together to do the quote unquote drifting, which I've always associated with racing. So that always sounded weird when they were saying that, but to do <laughs> you're the, not in control unless you're out of control. Yeah. The drifting together to control these beasts and they glossed over that so Easily, And again, that's something that Del Toro has talked about in different interviews and stuff. And they glossed over it so easily that these pilots get access to all of their memories. A, makes no sense whatsoever, even if I'm willing to remove my brain because I'm just going to enjoy this blockbuster. Even with that, I'm going to go, well, that's just stupid. And access to all of each other's memories and everything. I don't know anybody... <laughs> I don't care if it's my twin brother. I don't care who it is. I don't want you seeing all the crap that's in It's a very dark, <laughs> disturbing place. No one should have access to everything that's in there. And we're all the same. We're all in the same boat here. So, like, glossing over it that easily, it's just like, okay, I understand it's either that or entire destruction. Okay, fine. But still, it was glossed over too easily. And then when you're looking at, well, there has to be drift compatibility kind of thing and that it, the two pilots have to be compatible. And yet you look at who the pilots are, they're brothers, a father and son team, two people that share a last name. So it's thought that they're probably husband and wife or, or siblings and they then and triplets. And then, you know, so apparently it's more of being related than drift compatible. And then they make a big deal about the 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 token woman in the show with the exception of the one russian woman that has like what two scenes and that's it she's gone there's no women in this show except for this token asian woman who kicks ass and i will give them this they didn't sexualize her or anything like that but still it's this is a movie about men saving the planet for the most part yeah, that, that's a criticism I, I can definitely share because Del Toro made such a big deal out of what a fantastic character Mako was and how he was presenting her as you – know, not as a woman, just as another character and giving her you know, her own story arc that – I mean really her personal story arc is the, the central point of the movie. But yeah, the fact that she was really the only one of consequence despite how much he might have tried to make her that much better – it, the fact that she was the only one detracts from it. Yeah. And again, her story, incredibly cliched. How she fits in with, I'm going to just say Luther. I'll call him Luther from that. <laughs> I love him, but that's where, that's all I think about when I see him. Um, and I'll get the names as I, I go along. Uh, but anyways, how she fits with him, 
again, incredibly cliched. The brothers, and of course, one brother has to die, and the other one experiences the whole thing. Goes, retires, he's had it from that point, and just disappears to go work on a wall, which screams attack on Titan, let's be honest. Build a wall to stop giant things from eating us all. And, uh, and again, there's another incredibly formulaic story element the father and son team which at the end one replaces the other to die at the end all of the non-action fighting scenes were so so cliched everything right down to freaking again ron perlman who what's ron perlman doing as an underground dealer in hong kong surrounded by a whole bunch of asian folks I can actually speak to that once we get to that particular point in the story. Well, again, that, that's my point. So, again, as we're looking then at the movie as a whole, when you have – you've got that balance and you've got a movie that's going to have so much more action than story. So it's weighing it down. The story has to be solid. It has to have more substance so that you can have that equal balance between the two. And it's important. And unfortunately, in my opinion, I'm not even talking plot holes in the movie and things like that. Just, just in terms of the writing, it failed so miserably for me. And I do have a hard time disagreeing with that. And <laughs> this is kind of like what puts me in a tough spot when I'm defending this movie. Because like I said, on the surface, as it's presented, the movie is pretty light on the story and the plot and everything but and this is where i i have kind of an unfair advantage as compared to a number of people who saw the movie is i do know about the tremendous amount of world building that went into this like the travis beecham who was co-screenwriter along with del toro actually wrote a uh, comic book graphic novel that was a prequel to the film and it showed the amount of tremendous world building that went into it showed that you didn't have to be related in order to be drift compatible um stacker pentecost uh, idris elba's character his partner was just somebody that you know he turned out to be compatible with and then they formed a relationship of after they, they started working together. And so I know that there was all this world building put into it that wasn't presented on the screen. And it does disappoint me because there are so many other elements, especially early on in the film, the, the, the whole political stuff going on of, you know, why are they abandoning the Jaeger project in favor of just building walls? There's a lot of, you know, class reformation going on where suddenly you have you know it's the poor people who live along the coastline now because well that's where the most danger is and i know there is so much more to this that's not being presented on the screen and it does it does take away from the overall appeal to someone who hasn't you know seen more uh, than just the movie yeah well it's the same as other things where if you should still be able to enjoy the movie in and of itself. And yes, you'll get more out of it if you, whether it's read the books in some case, in this case, read the graphic novel, different things, yeah, you'll get more. But it shouldn't be that stark a difference that it's the difference between truly enjoying and not a movie. And this is the kind of movie which, again, the fight scenes, for the most part, phenomenal they were very well executed for the most part there were still some some problems that i had with some of them but it was so weak the movie overall that i would not even give it a second watching 
That hurts, Roger. Uh, doesn't it? Okay. It, it hurts so much. I want it to hurt your feel at some point. Your one feel. <laughs> I want it to stick in I, I have lost the will to go on. <laughs> this is the episode where I was be- I was willing to bet it was like, by the end of it, that's it. I give up. We yeah, lasted three episodes. <laughs> we we did better and I thought we were going to. <laughs> I'm Honestly, out of here. I thought the whole Star Trek thing was going to be the, the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Why don't you run us through the movie? Okay. Uh, so before we get into the the, uh, the actual plot, let's just take a quick rundown of our primary cast. We have Charlie Hunnam, who plays the main character of Raleigh Beckett, who was you know the hotshot pilot back in the glory days of the Jaeger program. But at the time of the core of the movie, he's pretty much washed out because you know his brother died alongside him in combat. As I said, we had Idris Elba as Stacker Pentecost, and we both you know love the guy as an actor. We have Rinko Kikuchi as the one and only female character of Mako Mori. We have Charlie Day as Dr. Newton Giesler, as well as Bern Gorman as his companion, Dr. Herman Gottlieb. And then we also have Robert Kaczynski and Max Martini as Chuck and Herc Hansen, the, uh, the badass Australians. <laughs> this is something funny because a, a good friend of ours, uh, Dan, he was just as hyped for this movie as I was. And I got a chance to see it like a week before he did. And I told him, like, I'm not going to ruin anything for you, but the Australians are the best characters in the movie. <laughs> and he responded like, well, yeah, <laughs> what would you expect? <laughs> and then also we have uh, Ron Perlman in his uh, fantastic cameo as Hannibal Chow. Let's start with Charlie Hunnam, who is so bland in this movie. So it's not com- just this movie. <laughs> completely, utterly boring. Well, you know he's, what? It's, he's I, easily the worst part of one of my favorite TV shows. Sons, Sons of, of Anarchy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he's boring as all hell. The the casting for this is... Like, I know they wanted someone that was beaten down and everything like that. I Okay, I can appreciate that. But you can still get someone who has that persona, who can play that, and still be interesting on the screen. He is so utterly bland that the, you don't give a rat's ass about him the, at any the point. The most I enjoyed him was in the beginning of the movie when he was still upbeat when he was playing, you know, that cocky pilot. The entire rest of the movie, he just sat there. Oh, he was he was terrible. He, he's supposed to be the freaking star of the show, and he was terrible. Absolutely. I guess you realize when you're in a movie with Idris Elba and Ron Perlman, it's probably just not worth trying. Yeah, but okay, let's move on to Idris. <laughs> Idris Elba, Elba is such an amazing actor. And I mean, watch this guy in Luther. There is like uncontrolled, or I should say control that most of the time, but just this rage that is beneath the surface at times when you see him on the screen. And then other times you just, again, it was quoted. One of the things I like, he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders at times too. Like he is such a powerful, passionate actor to watch in Luther. And in here, he's a guy with a freaking nosebleed. I mean, he really, he, he on the curve of, the actors I enjoyed watching in the show, he's, of course, at the top. But he was so underused, and his speeches that he gives, whether it's putting freaking Hunnam in his place there, which was boring as hell, I'm sorry, or his inspirational <laughs> speech at the end, which 
I'm, I'm, he's stepping up on that thing. I'm thinking of freaking, what's his name in Independence Day? Bill Pullman. Bill Pullman. I'm thinking, oh, it's going to be that kind of a speech. It's going to be, it is our independence. It's going to be great. And it was like, I almost fell asleep partway through. I'm going, that's it. My God, if I was in the audience, I would have thrown a tomato at you. (laughs) Like, it was not inspirational in the least. See, he has such a screen presence as an actor that he's the type of guy that when he says something, you're going to listen. And I, as, as far as that's concerned, I think he was a great pick for the role. And this is one of those things where I was just so caught up in you know, the overall film that a lot of the negatives I didn't even see. Like it, I was completely along for the ride right. by, by the end of the movie. Yeah, and see, that's what makes a huge difference because, again, when it's I'm – kind of like what we were talking about with Star Trek, how yeah. you were engrossed Exactly, and I exactly. Wasn't. Yeah, yeah. No, and I get that. I get that, and that's why I'm saying, like, I, I hear you. And, and again, with him, it's – he does have that pre- presence. In, 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 I mean, he could just stand there and deliver a simple line. The problem wasn't his performance. It's what he was given. His all lines, right. all of his dialogue was was – terrible and then when you factor in the cliched relationship with Mako it, you 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 really I mean there's a couple of points where you kind of feel that bond between the two of them but for the most part I didn't even feel that it it, it, it was and, and again I, I've raised I'm on my fourth kid I understand that how you want to be protective of your kids and you don't want them doing things that'll you know, kill them and different things like that. So, but that's not what comes across it, at all. It's this weird kind of, I'm your boss. You're going to do what I say. And there's not enough of an opportunity to factor in the, the reasons for how he feels. You, you just, it wasn't written in. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then Mako was kick butt. They made her so that she wasn't, um, wasn't sexualized, but then instead they just made her much more subservient. So you're giving up one, but you're getting the other one. So it's not like they created a powerful, strong, confident woman that can stand up to the rest of the guys. They created a subservient woman who is incredibly fractured because of what happened to her, which, okay, that, that makes sense. Although granted, once again, incredibly cliched backstory kind of thing, but, and then even in how they try to create the drama with the first time they drift together and she nearly blows the place up kind of thing, she's incredibly flawed and, and quite obviously not the right person for the job. So even in that, they didn't cre- give her the, the space that she would have needed as a character either. See, when I look at Mako's character, I, I really boil it down to just being intently focused on a single goal. And whenever that aspect of the character was given a chance in the film, I, th- I think she did follow through with how, you know, when she's a, uh, overseeing the the compatibility tests with Raleigh and she knows she can do better but you know she's not being allowed and it's those moments of the character where you see her sheer desire just to be a part of you know getting rid of the kaiju that I, I think her performance was best hmm. and then the doctors well 
Geisler was funny, but I mean that that was the whole point. Yeah, when you cast Charlie Day, you're not really doing it for acting ability. Yeah, and then Gottlieb was eh, passable, but very cliched kind of. Mm-hmm. Let's put this guy in a bow tie. Um, so really, for me, we're forgettable. I'm sorry, the Australian dudes. <laughs> Again, entirely formulaic father son team cocky kid that deserves to be slapped father doesn't do it and their entire relationship is a joke and how they react to the others right down to the scripted mandatory fight scene between sons of anarchy dude and the son (laughs) it was you may as well have just said okay at this point in the movie make sure this happens and it's going to be because he's going to protect the, 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 the virtue of Mako and you apologize to her. And it's like, oh, come on, seriously? I don't care. I loved him and they had a great dog. Pfft. My dog's cuter. <laughs> and then <laughs> cuter, I will not argue. <laughs> <laughs> and then again, Ron Perlman. I do really like him in some stuff. This just did not fit in my opinion. At all. At all at all. It just... You had something to say about this. <laughs> As I say, we'll, we'll come back to this later, but him not fitting was kind of the point. All right. Go on. <laughs> okay. So diving into the actual movie itself, like you said, we had that tremendous opening sequence of showing off the, you know, the early days of the Kaiju War. And one of the things that was very important in this early sequence is just setting the sense of scale. When you have that first Kaiju knife head coming across the Golden Gate Bridge and just his fingernails are bigger than cars and trucks, that is the one thing that this movie did beautifully throughout you know, all the action and effect sequences. But of course, you know, anybody could do action and effect sequences. But the sense of scale this movie gave everything was truly impressive to me. It was when the kaiju were in cities. Where well, yeah, it's kind of hard to then, skip scale in the middle of an ocean. That's the thing. And a lot of this thing, this movie takes place in water. Lots of it. There's a reason it's called Pacific Rim. Actually, no, Pacific Rim is the worst title ever for this movie. But anyways, but yeah, you're seeing these massive things going in in the water. Yes, from a technical perspective, when you're looking at the special effects with the water, which is something that Del Toro talks about a lot and how important that was to them. Yeah, it looks great. But the scale isn't there. And it's so dark and rainy that at points you cannot tell what the hell is happening. And it reminded me of, I'm trying to remember, I think it was the the first one or the second Transformers that was so freaking dark throughout, you couldn't tell who was who at points. And that's what I felt here. When they were in cities, yeah, looked phenomenal. The scale was incredible and and great. But a lot of the other fight scenes were meh. Okay. You could take some some freaking little Transformers in your bathtub and some Godzillas (laughs) and get the same scale. Have you... (laughs) seen my bathtub <laughs> i'd rather not <laughs> all kinds of freaking hairy gunk in it no thanks <laughs> so yeah they 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 gloss over a lot of the the early days of building up the Jaeger program and it uh, this is something we discuss again a lot on the comics podcast that when the story tells you yeah giant robots were the best solution you kind of have to go along yeah. with it Especially if the giant robots have freaking swords in them. (laughs) Okay, listen. 
<laughs> fighting till nearly the end and only at the very end oh look we have a freaking sword we can i'm sorry i'm getting ahead of me keep going yeah you, you are oh dude <laughs> And again, I, I actually do have a justification for that plot. There's point. no justification for that. She could have used the sword right at the beginning. I stab you in the face. You're dead. Goodbye. No, let's wait until you're in the freaking air just so that you could chop the wings off and then fall to your death. That makes uh, perfect on, on, sense. On that point, we'll have to make sure that after this is over to look up the how it should have ended for Pacific Rim. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> but we flash forward uh, seven years into the kaiju battle where things are going great. You know, the, the Jaegers have been wildly successful. The pilots are rock stars. And this is where we're introduced to Gypsy Danger and uh, the, t- the team of Raleigh and Yancey. And, you know, Yancey's kind of irrelevant to the entire movie, <laughs> which is why Yancey was great. <laughs> the names in go- this movie are stupid as well. Beginning but, you know, to end. They're called into battle against the, the Kaiju Karloff, who is uh, coming towards the Alaskan coastline in this business. And they are just as, you know, as cocky as you can be going into the battle because I think at this point they've defeated six or seven Kaiju. And this was the largest one ever recorded yet. And they were really excited about being able to go into battle. And, of course, they underestimate their enemy, Karloff rips Gypsy Danger's head open and yanks Yancey out of the cockpit, you know, pretty much killing him at some point in the process. And the fact that since they're psychically linked as part of the piloting of the kaiju, Raleigh experiences Yancey's death on an extremely personal level, and that does affect him throughout the film. But this is where I want to point out one of the great filmmaking bits of the movie is the actual Jaegers themselves, which, uh, all right, for for the actual nerd dictionary, technically these are mechs and not robots because <laughs> robots are autonomous. But <laughs> I, I just have to throw that, that out. Was going to come out. I was. What time are we going to be looking at when this? Came? <laughs> Maybe what thirty minutes in? Yeah, <laughs> I almost started a pool. <laughs> all right. First of all. Did you notice the the uh, the computerized voice of Gypsy Danger? Oh, of OS? course. Immediately. I'm watching and there's myself, my wife, and our youngest son. And we've both played the crap out of Portal 1 and 2. And so as soon as the voice came on, we both looked at each other. And he was like, is that her? I'm going, it sure as hell sounds like her. Yes, that, that, that is absolutely the, Ellen McLean, the yeah. voice of GLaDOS. You, you and figured. as Gilmo del Toro said, he is a huge fan of Portal. Like he played through all the co-op missions with his daughter. And you know he's, he's a giant nerd. I mean, great. And he actually went to Valve specifically to request their permission to use Ellen McLean. That and there is golden. <laughs> it, like, it was an explosion when the first trailer actually hit the internet because for that first trailer, he didn't even modulate her voice differently. It was just GLaDOS was the AI. <laughs> see, it, see, this is one of the movies that I didn't watch any of the trailers for it. And there, there was a time where... We watch trailers so much, like incredibly all the time, and we haven't been lately. And we actually don't have cable at the house, TV, whatnot. So we don't see trailers coming out kind of thing. So I honestly had not seen any trailers for this movie before it came out. And I was all right with that because a lot of times now I purposefully avoid them just so that I can enjoy it when it comes out. So that when I heard that voice, it was just a small moment of glee there. (laughs) And I, the way they did the shooting of the actual uh, 
Jaeger cockpits. Del Toro built like a 30-foot tall set just for the Jaeger cockpits with all the mechanics and everything in there. So there isn't a whole lot of CGI going on, at least in these particular scenes. Of course, you have the computer overlays and all that stuff. But the actors were actually strapped into these gigantic harnesses and... That's not the camera shaking. The entire set was on hydraulics, and he was just banging the you know the, the set around. You know, they they didn't have to act to react to the actual combat. They were feeling it in real life. They were throwing hundreds of gallons of water in there. Like the sparks were a lot of those were real. So that, I that's a certain uh, commitment to filmmaking that you know, since Del Toro didn't have to be inside there, I'm sure he was all too gleefully. <laughs> happy to go through with well, he think, spent all his money said, on uh, water i think he said a number of the actors sustained actual injuries yes. filming those scenes yeah i like it though something like that you're getting something that's a lot more realistic in terms of the actor's mm-hmm. reaction to being bashed around like that so i, I actually like that See, that's one thing he said. He he wanted to make as much of this feel as real as possible which Ridiculous premise aside, personally, I, I say he did do a good job of making everything seem to fit within that world. And this is where uh, he's kind of taken a shot at uh, Michael Bay and his Transformers, saying he didn't want to make a car commercial or a military recruitment film. <laughs> he just wanted everything to blend seamlessly into one world. Uh, he, he shouldn't take too many shots. <laughs> I don't think that's a wise thing to do. <laughs> If you say so, boss. <laughs> and this is where we, we also see a lot of Del Toro's specific color coding of a lot of the elements in this film coming through. How in this early scene, uh, Yancey and Raleigh are wearing you know these beautiful gleaming white suits. You know they're the they're the heroic knights riding out to you know slay the dragon, and it's really through their own arrogance that they're defeated. And that's it, it's in a lot of ways represented as you see at the end when Raleigh's injured and the blood is soaking into his uniform, like that red, you know, it's staining his uniform. Like he's no longer going to be that white knight again. And that's one of the, again, one of those real subtle filmmaking things that I noticed and I appreciated because that's the stuff I I do like to look for in films is a lot of the, 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 the meta storytelling and the, the stuff that's not really presented to the audience in an obvious way. When it's done in a movie that I, I don't want to say have more respect for it, but I'm more invested in, I enjoy it more, but I don't want to say that I'd already clocked out by this point because this is still fairly early. This is like 10 minutes. This is still fairly early, but even then, I'm sorry, but even the beginning of this really, there was already things that I wasn't crazy about already. So, I mean, anyways, keep going. (laughs) So we jump ahead a number of years and, you know, find Raleigh is no longer a member of the Jaeger program. He's he's washed out. He's basically just a construction worker now, uh, building the wall just to, just to survive. And before Pentecost, you know, comes and recruits him for their big heroic last stand, because this is where I said, there's a lot more political aspects to the story that I really do wish were more presented in the film because I, I have to believe that there's more behind this and it's not presented anywhere I, either in, like I said, the graphic novel. It's not, it's not there anywhere. But for me, that's also a really interesting part of the story is seeing you know, why exactly there's this major change in, in the way 
you know, the world is reacting to the kaiju. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they've gone from winning to losing, but still, there, there is an interesting story in there that I wish they could tell. So Pentecost brings Raleigh into the Shatter Dome, and this was for me. Like, I was giggling, like I was going nuts, <laughs> just seeing this huge hangar full of all these mechs, and oh my goodness, I, I kind of lost my mind a bit. <laughs> This is where this is one of those parts where you know here I am a 32 year old man sitting in a movie theater and instantly I was I was 10 years old again I was sitting on the living room floor watching Godzilla movies you know after Saturday morning cartoons again this that is exactly what this movie did to me it reduced me to a child which admittedly is not much of a yeah change. that's not very hard to do for you but I, I, that's why I think personally I was able to gloss over a lot of the more troubling aspects of the film that I can't admit are there, but they just didn't matter for me. <laughs> See, I was a kid once too. I like big giant robots. I liked all those things too. When I was a kid, I watched the, the shows, the movies and all that too. I, I, so it's, it's not that, I mean, and it's not a level of fandom either. I'm, I'd be, you know, I, I would say some may disagree, but, but it didn't put me there. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of that, at least for me, is that you can't just give me an airplane hangar full of robots and expect me to be excited if I'm already not invested in the characters. Which by this point, again, freaking Sins of Anarchy dude was not getting any love from me. He was moping on his wall of doom. So it was like, I don't care. And Luther was pretty mellow. And, you know, not much of a presence overall compared to, well, Luther. So I'm still not heavily invested in any of these people. And I think that, see, for me at least, you need them both. So if I had seen someone that I cared about, I care about this dude. And yes, it's a formulaic story. He's been beaten, but he's going to come back and he's going to be awesome. Save the world, blah, blah, blah. We already know what's going to happen. But I like him. Him walking onto that platform in that moment, looking from behind him and seeing his back and then all the way up into this massive structure, you can really feel it. And I just did not. It was just a set to me. See, I'm easy. Airplane hangar full of robots is about all I need. (laughs) But the Shatterdome, in addition to being impressive, this part of the movie is really where a lot of the various themes come together. Uh, first of all, we have the various Jaegers themselves and how each of the Jaegers, at least from a style standpoint, have their own unique character. And it, 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 it disappoints me to no end that the coolest Jaeger in the movie was uh, on screen for like five minutes. But <laughs> we had, of course, Gypsy Danger, as we've seen. And Gypsy's whole style was really modeled after old, you know, World War II aircrafts, even to the extent of, you know, the bomber jackets Yancey and Raleigh were wearing at the beginning of the film. And it really does carry a lot of that, those elements through where it's 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 sleek but bulky at the same time, just just like those World War II aircraft. You know, you look back at some of those now and you go, there's there's no way that thing flew through the air. But you know laws of physics, be damned it, it did work. You have Cherno Alpha, which is, you know, the star of the film. <laughs> Just this giant beast. It's It was one of the first Jaegers ever built from Russia, and it looks like it. It's modeled after you know an old tank, an old Russian tank, and even in its color scheme of you know military green and just the way it's presented. It has this huge 
reactor on its head, this giant silo that's just ridiculous. And I loved it and I hated that it didn't get to do anything. (laughs) We also have uh, Crimson Typhoon, the Chinese Jaeger. This one was really designed to look just like, you know, an old Chinese suit of armor and – it worked. It had it had the nice bright red, and it, it, again, it was smooth. It had certain decorative elements to it that gave it that eastern flair that I thought it really needed. And also, uh, Striker Eureka, the Australian Jaeger. Hey, whoa! Which, it had three freaking arms. You're just glossing well, yeah. over the three arms. You didn't well, even mention it. Did. <laughs> well, they well, they kind of the, the fight scene where the freaking goes all the way up and over and yeah, stabity stab. I mean, I was all right with that. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> And then you also had Striker Eureka, which is you know the the last one off the assembly line, the the newest, most advanced Jaeger available from Australia, and it looks a lot like you know a a top end all terrain vehicle. It's very sleek, very fast, and it has sort of that you know that outback paint job of you know browns and greens and sort of a camouflage look, and it's just the Jaegers themselves had so much character for me in the film that it, it, it was all part of just drawing me in personally. I won't argue with you on that. Okay. <laughs> all right. I forgive you a little bit. Was, really? <laughs> There's like a 5% <laughs> forgiveness there. I'm giving you. <laughs> and then we have, this was really interesting when I was listening to Del Toro talk about this, how I, I'd known going in that people kept asking him, you know, like, oh, yeah, you have all these visions of, you know, these famous kaiju and anime and all that. And they, they were really looking for, you know, what did you really, you know, watch to inspire you to make the movie? And he flat out said, when I was working on this movie, I didn't watch anything. I didn't want any one specific you know, character or design to really dictate what the film was. I just, he just wanted it to be more of his general memories of the genre instead of having you know, one or two particular works heavily influence the final product. Yeah, but he conflicts himself often with quotes to different places saying, we went to nature for different creatures so that it looked like creatures. And then another sure. one saying, we went to various old kaiju things so that it looked like certain other beasts or was inspired from. So he really kind of... I say, he, 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 he drew a lot of inspiration from the, the overall kaiju genre. But like I said, he didn't want any one or two films or works to, to really point at and go, oh, yeah, that's from, you know, Godzilla or, you know, the, oh, that monster right there, that's from War of the Gargantuas. Like, where he, they didn't want anybody to point at and really see a specific influence on the film. More of just a general uh, way of going about it. Mm-hmm. But what he does say is he watched a lot of sports movies getting ready for Pacific Rim. And a lot of, you know, as you hear him talking through the uh, director's commentary on the DVD and Blu-ray, that that was really his story concept going in for the character arcs, that it was very much your classic sports movie with uh, the character of Raleigh representing, you know, the former superstar. You know, he, he, uh, he won the Super Bowl, what have you, and he's on the downside of his career and, you know, he joins a team to really have, you know, one last run at glory and – I've seen any number of sports movies and it, it, it does fit in with the tropes. Whereas you have, you know, Sacra Pentecost as the coach, the coach who really wants the, the older player there, but is also not really willing to take his crap. You have, uh, what is his name? Goodness. 
Chuck Hansen. I'm sorry. I, I, I can always remember Herc, but I can never remember Chuck for some reason. <laughs> Chuck Hansen as, you know, the new star, the new hotshot, you know, the, the quarterback of the, the team for the modern era. And he doesn't get along with, you know, the older player who he thinks is trying to come in and kind of steal some of his spotlight. And of course, you have the, the rookie player with, uh, and, and Mako, who forms a bond with, the older player and this this will play out several points throughout the film and really when you look at it against that that setup of the traditional sports film i didn't see it at first until he mentioned it and i don't even know if it's a very good story concept to go with but i thought it was pretty darn interesting that he actually pulled it off i see it more as or it could be compared way more easily to just plain old tropes that we've seen time and time again in any number of movies, whether it's a sports movie or not, to me, Mm -hmm. didn't really matter. It was something that we've seen so many times that it was again, right out of a script book. I suppose that can uh, be said as well. (laughs) There goes my 5%. It's gone. (laughs) (laughs) And you also have here in the shatter dome, the real main concept of the film and of all kaiju films, really, that the whole point of the story isn't, you know, the giant monsters or the destruction or any of that. The entire point of any good kaiju film is about how the people survive, how they pull through, you know, how, how they can face this undefeatable threat that, like I said, I, I actually wrote something briefly about this when the movie first came out, that in the movies, the kaiju are there to represent any number of things. Like you look back at the original 1954 Godzilla film and specifically the Japanese version, uh, the American version with Raymond Burr is perfectly fine, but it does lose a lot of the symbolism uh, in the Japanese version of Godzilla just flat out representing a nuclear threat. And this is a movie that came out less than a decade after Hiroshima was bombed. And the film was really made kind of in a way of, accepting what had happened to Japan and kind of as, as a healing effect where you're not going to stop Godzilla. You know, it's this horrible beast that if you're caught in its path, you're done. But it, the movie was really about how everybody came together and just weathered the storm. And once it was over with, pulled through stronger. And that is really the overall theme of I said any number of kaiju film. I'm not going to go too far into detail and minutia, but that's really what's represented here in Pacific Rim of that overall concept of a number of people, in this case, a number of nations and cultures banding together to stand against this insurmountable threat. And this is where the characters, the the two doctors, uh, Newton Gottlieb, this is really their primary role in the film of you have these two in their own ways – stereotypical, you know, scientist type characters, both representing different aspects of, you know, science. You have Gottlieb who is, you know, controlled, you know, very focused on numbers and results and proper procedure. And then you have Newt who is just in the creativity and thinking outside the box. And you have these two very distant characters who can't stand each other. And I actually did enjoy, you know, the few scenes they had together, especially early on in the film. And Throughout the film, you know, they come together as to find a, you know, a common ground to stand up to and eventually defeat the threat. And yes, I do realize that is a very common storytelling trope, but I just, it's one of those things where I also don't 
care because <laughs> that that storytelling trope has been a factor in just about every major kaiju film for the last 60 years. Okay, see, this is something we've discussed as well on the comic book podcast where I understand that there are a lot of of cliches and tropes that you can't get around. They, they, they're going to be there and that's fine. It's how it's handled. So it's all right. If something is a commonly used trope, just make something good of it. And unfortunately, again, with every single one, and I'm going to include the, the good doctors, I didn't feel it was good enough. So, which isn't, I mean, they were, they were good. And, the few times that you really kind of see them together, fine. It wasn't phenomenal, but it was it was good. I, I laughed a couple of times, but it it just wasn't enough to to counteract everything else. Also, that was so bland and terrible with the regular story, not the fighting monsters. So yeah, as much as I enjoyed them, I yeah, it just wasn't enough. I'm crying. I'm sorry, Roger. I can't continue. <laughs> so I'm in the hole now is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm you're right reading some bad comics next month. <laughs> yeah, what's new? <laughs> I'm sorry, but sorry. it's true. I'm not the only one that feels this way. There is no, a I, lot I of people. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. It's just I'm kind of. And, and you know, it's funny I'm because. Laughing too much at the we're, we're we're like only three episodes in, so you know if if someone hasn't listened to the comic book podcast or a gaming podcast and stuff, they they don't necessarily know me. You might think, okay, well he doesn't just en- he doesn't enjoy silly movies or silly games or silly whatever, and I do, I do, and I've got my own things just like you yeah. that I'm willing to completely let go some for some, whether it's a, a specific IP or something like that. Forget it. I'll have fun and I'll enjoy it. Doesn't matter how bad it is. Well, I mean, within reason, of course. So, and I, in in action movies, don't get me wrong. I'm willing to just let go and get sunk in and have a blast with it. And 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 I'm all right with that. So, so I went in with that mentality for this. I was ready to just let go and have fun. But there were so many things, and the, the and and the story points. Not the the fighting, the story points again were so unbearably bland that I just couldn't stay in the moment. I couldn't stay invested in the movie to enjoy it and have fun. And I totally accept that and totally buy that. And you know that that's what makes kind of our odd pairing here work sometimes is I, I do tend to get a little fanboyish at various times, and you do kind of rein me back in and you know force me to look at exactly you know what's happening, and and, and I think everybody needs that at some point. So that's that's perfectly fine. But getting back into the theme I started earlier on about colors and what you know what a number of colors represent, how when we see Gypsy, you know, there when they finally go to start the test with Mako and Raleigh. You know, being chosen as the you know the pilots for Gypsy Danger. The first thing I noticed was the uniforms are no longer white; they're now black. Because, like I said, they they lost that innocence that they had at the beginning of the film. And it's it's again, it's one of those very subtle things that I do appreciate about the film. I thought it was more about just everybody trying to look cool. 
Because everybody's in black at that point. (laughs) Everybody's going to look badass now. Of course, that means all in black. (laughs) It's true. That's what I saw. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But that doesn't mean the other meaning also wasn't there. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Completely lost, but it was there. And then this is where you know we get Raleigh and Mako joining up for the first time, drifting together. And I do think one of the important little quirks they did with the story here was it wasn't just the rookie stepping into the machine and screwing everything up. It was actually Raleigh who, you know, went too deep, you know, however you want to call it. And he was the first one to slip of, you know, that memory of Yancey dying. And it was his mistake that really, you know, sent Mako off and sent her deep into the drift but it also led to what personally was probably my favorite scene in the entire movie and that's the flashback to when Mako was the other little girl all alone in Tokyo somewhere in Japan that's really all that matters when this ridiculous crab kaiju thing is just wreaking havoc and this was, you know, again, as somebody who has watched these ever since, you know, he was Mako's age, basically. This really did represent to me a lot of, you know, the 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 threat and the dread that, you know, these monsters can build. It was also really the only point in the film where you had that really low angle shot to, you know, really make you look up from street level all the way to the top of the kaiju. Where, like I said, they did a great job with scale and other ways in the film without relying on that low angle shot. But particularly for this scene, using it to represent, you know, how this little girl is viewing it, I thought it was very impactful. And like, even as a grown adult, I was like, this, this has got to be kind of scary for a lot of people. <laughs> Okay, but here's here's my question. Okay, you, okay, you listen to the commentary. Did at any point, it, who does the commentary? By the way, it's just Guillermo. Okay, does he say anything about why she's alone there? He doesn't because I think he assumes a lot of people could extrapolate from that particular scene that this isn't exactly what of course this is Mako's memory memory of the scene where she's feeling lost and again this is my interpretation of the particular no no where she she's feeling so lost and alone she's remembering it that way because i i highly doubt she was the only person left in all of tokyo during this attack and see that's the thing there's sometimes when you are crafting a scene or you're doing whatever where you have to weigh the technical merits of creating a scene like it probably should be versus what is required. And in this case, yes, she would be alone because in her child's mind, nothing else mattered except for this giant thing that was stomping through the city. I I see that completely understand that makes sense. However, by doing it that way, what he did was completely remove so much of the tension, the reality, the the reason why it's terrifying. When you're watching it now, it's terrifying because she's a young child and there's this thing breaking down buildings. It's not terrifying because 20 feet from where she just ran, there's a body that was split in half. Or there, and I know that they had to kind of rein in some of the violence and whatnot. But still, there's the, the, the wanton destruction of people dead and dying everywhere isn't there. That removes a huge amount of tension for me. And so you have instead a 
again, cliched scene without so much tension that should have been there otherwise. See, and that's personal taste because for me it was the exact opposite effect. The the feeling of loneliness and hopelessness was really hmm. – it, for, for like I said, for me personally, it was really uh, illuminated by that particular choice. Yeah, see, it's the difference between a, a differences between the two of us how we interpreted it. But for me, it's a difference between seeing the the scene, seeing the scene versus feeling the scene. Mm-hmm. And with me, because of that, I saw it. I saw it from a technical standpoint yeah. versus feeling it from the child. I could I could see what they're trying to do, but it's like no, because this is missing. It really takes away so much for me personally. Mm-hmm. Like I said personally, I was completely into right. it. Okay, and it, it even goes so far as you know to the to the uh, kind of again cliched moment of you know Stacker Pentecost. Uh, you know when he after the kaiju is defeated, oh, climbing out of the the, the Jaeger as, as you know a literal golden god illuminated by the rising sun. And of course, it's all symbolism. And again, you have to take into account you know is that the way it actually happened or mm-hmm. just the way Mako remembers it. Yeah. But again, getting back into the whole color coding and theming of the film. As we see throughout the entire movie, you know, Mako has these blue highlights in her hair. And as you notice in that particular scene, that blue perfectly matches the dress she was wearing when she was that little girl. And how that memory, you know, has become so ingrained with her personality. It's actually, you know, physically manifested on her. And, you know, every time she looks in a mirror, that's what she remembers. And it's, again, it's one of those very subtle things that, you know, I picked up on watching the film and it it made the character that much more interesting and gave her depth without, again, without being part of this plot, without being part of the script. But again, it was, like I said, it's those little things that really drew me in and, made me connect a little better than a lot of other people did. I think it was a little too subtle because I actually didn't pick up on that. <laughs> okay. Not that I'm the brightest freaking <laughs> bulb in the <laughs> to, 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 go, to go slightly off topic again, there was this great article I read not long after the film came out about this guy who, you know, he's, he, he's a big movie fan and whatnot. And his girlfriend, I don't want to call it a disability or I don't really know what to call it, but verbally and you know through through speaking and whatnot she takes everything literally like at face value like she her brain can't really comprehend you know irony or humor or a lot of that stuff you know it's it's very literal but at the same time she processes things visually on a completely different level and that's one of the things that you know she had pointed out to him after watching the movie was you know the color blue represented so much more of mako's character than he had initially seen or a lot of the stuff Going on in the background, like like you said, the Russians, awesome characters. I want a movie of just the Russians beating up kaiju in their giant mech, and then I'll pay any amount of money to see that movie. But they did not get much screen time. But there's a number of scenes where you know they're in the background, and you know they they are doing their best as actors to portray their characters without lines, and it's it. it it's something I even didn't notice the first time I watched the film, but the second time through, specifically looking for the Russians and their body language and a lot of the subtle things they did throughout the movie that I did gain an even greater appreciation of the visual storytelling versus the the, the audible storytelling, if you will. Well, that's something that Del Toro really shines at. I yeah. mean, although you see it a lot more in his Spanish films and the others, like, I mean, you can't really compare Pan's Labyrinth to Hellboy in terms of symbolism, but you, and that's why 
I equate this far more with, again, the the Hellboy-type movie than what it should have been as something that had a lot more of Pan's Labyrinth in it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's it's something that I, I read a quote somewhere about this, and I wish I still had the quote. If I find the quote again, I'll put it in the show notes with the obvious credit to who said it. But to, to paraphrase, it was... After watching the film, they could appreciate the technical um, aspects of the technical beauty, the technical marvels of the movie, but not the magic behind it. it and that's a big thing of what I had a problem with this. And again, going back to Pan's Labyrinth, which I adored on so many levels. It was unbelievable. And I think if we had more of that feeling, that mm-hmm. in this this would have been incredible. And I think that that's partially also what made me sad about it, going into it, knowing who it was and, and, and his pedigree for films and things like that. And thinking, wow, is that where we're going to get this, this epic story of these, you know, Japanese inspired beasts versus, okay, well, the mechs, man, not as big a deal with me as for you say, <laughs> but all right, whatever. Still it's, it's man versus beast. But with that fantastic, Again, the magic that he brings to certain movies. And it was like, nah, it's just typical Hollywood fanfare. It was like, ah, damn it. Yeah, I, I, I will undoubtedly say that on a number of levels, this is in many ways the weakest of his films. Yeah. Technically, you know, artistically, it, you know, you, you, you stack it up even against Hellboy, which was, you know, a big, you know, Hollywood summer, you know, tentpole film. It, that was, that had such a sense of grandeur and wonder to it that in a lot of ways, Pacific Rim doesn't measure up to. Yeah. And you know what? I, in the way that I was talking about Hellboy there, I may mean, sound somewhat derogatory. I, I, I enjoyed Hellboy. Even again, as a comic book adaptation kind of thing, I'm willing to let go and enjoy. And I, I enjoyed it. But you can't even begin to compare it in terms oh, of no, no, no. simple movie magic to what he did with Pan's Labyrinth. And again, going back to this is what the, what should have been, what could have been is what I miss most, which is what makes it so hard for me to swallow than what we got instead. Mm-hmm. So this is where I'm um, kind of in the interest of time, kind of skipping a bit here. <laughs> now we come to the, the Hong Kong portion of the film after uh, Newt has drifted with the Kaiju brain and, you know, kind of seen a glimpse into, you know, what exactly is going on there. And I, I did like the like the little point of you know this is the first time they tried the dinosaurs were actually the first wave of kaiju fun stuff but that I did like yes yeah that, that was very yeah. fun where you know he We've sent on terraformed this mission, the planet for them <laughs> yeah <laughs> sent on this mission to find Hannibal Chow because well they need a new brain at this point and this is where you get Ron Perlman's completely over the top completely ludicrous completely ridiculous character of this black market kaiju body part dealer. And I loved the character. See, I did I not. I know you didn't. I, I just did, did not. And it's, to me, it was, again, bad casting. But by this point, by this point, I've been picking apart bad casting throughout the movie. You know, so, and and so, I mean, if it wasn't for freaking Luther, again, it was like, oh, man. I So I'm picking apart bad So when you see him, all of a sudden, it's like, Ron Pearl, what? <laughs> and you kind of, you know, it's coming along, but it's like, oh, Jesus, this is stupid. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was brilliant, personally. 
Okay, tell me why he fits okay. in this. The, the, the whole concept, specifically with Hannibal and with you know the, the downtown Hong Kong as a whole, which, again, there's a lot of very subtle storytelling there of the, the, the Hong Kong slums are basically built around the skeleton of this kaiju. How, you know, this Hong Kong used to be a pretty, you know, <laughs> bustling city and how there was this battle, this kaiju died there. And suddenly the land around the kaiju became pretty much worthless. You know, nobody wants to live there anymore. And what are you going to do with a, a 50 foot tall skeleton? You're not exactly going to move that thing out of the way in a timely manner. So that's where the slum built up. But that was just ancillary storytelling. But the role that Hannibal Chow specifically serves in this film, and this is from Del Toro himself, and I agree with him particularly, not necessarily from a story standpoint, but from a tone and a feel that they've gone so far putting in all these fantastic elements of, you know, giant robots, giant monsters, giant everything, you know, ludicrous story point after ludicrous story point that they then purposefully inserted a character and a concept into the movie that was as ludicrous and over the top as they could make it so that in comparison, once this character has been established and now you look back at all the stuff going on at the Shatter Dome and everything, suddenly those aspects seem a little more realistic because you've got, you know, the guy in the clown suit over there as a counterbalance. I didn't buy that. I understand exactly what you're saying. I get it, but I that's not how it felt while watching it for me. Okay? Not at all. At all at all at all. It's and I understand it's the rodeo mentality. Tossing the clowns. So I I get that, but it's it did not work that way for me at all. It just served as yet another bad casting choice that leads you to just roll your eyes instead of remain engrossed in the movie. And that's something that I've said time and time again, whether it's about uh, movies or about comic books or different things like that. If it takes you out of the story, the writer fails. Well, in this case, you're looking at writers, directing, casting, everything. It's a lot more involved. But the moment you as the viewer have been taken out that's it. You fail. And in no amount of anything is likely to bring you back in, especially if it's a continuous slope downward. And so inserting this ludicrous character at this point, you're literally face palming, you know? So like there's moments where my 16 year old son <laughs> is like saying, well, that makes no sense. If you can't hold a 16, year old attention that they're not going to find this ludicrous you've kind of failed here i i i fear for that boy's future <laughs> what he's a little too level-headed yes exactly <laughs> this world is not a place for people like all right but then this brings us to the 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 high point of the film in any number of ways you know the the whole part of the film that everything else is built around and that's the battle for hong kong and this scene from beginning to end from when the kaiju first emerge until basically gypsies landing at the end it you're looking at 24 minutes of almost non-stop action and it starts off with these two uh, kaiju leatherback and otachi and this was the first time in recorded history that there have been two kaiju at once emerging showing that you know things are definitely getting worse so Pentecost sends out uh, Cherno and Typhoon as the front line with Eureka back, Stryker backing them up. And, you know, Gypsy's benched at this point, again, using the sports metaphor, Gypsy's on riding the bench. And this was actually one of the few positive parts you had about the movie. So <laughs> I'll let you talk a little bit about well, it. Well, yes and no. I mean, here you're looking at 
this fight that is pra- okay. Which one are we talking about here now? We're not talking about. Oh, you're talking about yes, the two. Yeah, okay, yes, the scale of that one was phenomenal. The one big guy, big one, was kind of modeled after uh, a gorilla. They were saying yes, of course. Yeah, so once you have that sucker in there, and you see them picking up the the transport things, cars, the massive, mm-hmm. you know, and they're bashing his head in with them and shoving it down his throat, kind of thing. Then you can really appreciate. The, the the scope and when they're fighting through the city as well when he <laughs> when he when when the mech is kind of inching his way down the street well inching <laughs> more like a mile a step but you know yeah. what I mean and then the 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 keiju comes through the glass building at him it was like oh. okay that was well done now we've got scope now we can appreciate just how insane this is the problem is there's no bodies flying all over the place which you know again i understand for ratings and whatnot but that well, would have made it that's even something better. del toro specifically uh mentioned that in, in a lot of ways in life he, he is very much a pacifist and he specifically yes. wanted to show enough scenes of people being evacuated and the fact that this isn't exactly something new for them at this point you know they know when they hear the sirens they get the hell out of dodge he wanted to show to the best of his ability that the city was almost at least as, as much as possible evacuated at that point. Yeah. It, and that, that's just his personal philosophy. Yeah. The cinematography for, for those scenes in there was absolutely phenomenal. The thing is too, and, and I, I, I appreciate that a lot of it is not just about the scripting choices and things like that. It comes down to money. Plain and simple. Mm-hmm. They can only do so many of those insane scenes because it costs too much. And, you know, industrial light and magic don't come cheap. So I, I can appreciate that. So it's good that and they I think this had is before they were sold to Disney, too. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So this is that that was a phenomenal scene. And it, it what I enjoy, too, about it is that at no point is it confusing about who's who. Who's where and what's going on? Yeah, there there wasn't a lot of jump cuts, no shaky nope. cam. It was all framed magnificently. It, it it was very easy to keep track of the actual battle. And you know, again, comparing it to like the, those Transformers films and so many of those action scenes, I you cannot really tell what's going on because of the way it's edited, because of the way it's shot, and that that is Del Toro just destroyed it from any yeah. cinematography standpoint with these action scenes. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was it was really impressive. But you see, I, this is where even I'll step up and say there were certain parts of this whole Hong Kong sequence that bothered me. Now, first of all, like I said, uh, Crimson Typhoon and Cherno Alpha get wiped out almost immediately. They they both get a tiny little bit of offense in. Typhoon looked awesome with his third arm and the whirling blades. And you're like, oh, this is going to be great. And he just gets absolutely wrecked <laughs> as quickly yeah. as possible. Yeah. Cherno gets destroyed by you know, acid and whatnot. And just as Strikers, you know, about to come in and save the day, one of the kaiju actually released like an EMP blast and shuts down all the electronics. At this point, everybody's like, oh, we're screwed. Striker's dead in the water. There's nothing we can do. And this is where, you know, Raleigh steps up and goes, oh, Gypsy's analog. We can go out there. Like, Gypsy runs on a nuclear reactor. There's nothing analog about a nuclear reactor i don't want a nuclear reactor in an anything if it doesn't have a computer system running it i i'm tech so yeah i get to that point and i'm rolling my eyes and like i said even me who was completely (laughs) sold i was like that's not right but 
all, you know, five minutes later, I didn't care because it was awesome. I was willing to let it go, but no, I, I yes, I was at the same page. And also during the you know the big scene in uh, in Hong Kong, I think at this point he's fighting uh, Otochi when the you know the fist goes flying through the building and stops at the very last second and just kind of taps the Newton's cradle and. It was just so out of place. It's just a sight gag. It it that was like really the one the two things that bothered me the most about the movie. Yeah. But you also mentioned how as they're fighting Otachi, uh, just when things seem to be at their absolute worst or at the most cinematography you know relevant time to use it, <laughs> they you know they bust out the sword and win the day with the kaiju sword. It's and again, stupid. this is. <laughs> I'm sorry, you were saying? It's stupid. It was awesome. (laughs) Okay. Oh, oh God. (laughs) And at certain points, you have to allow the story to just be as awesome as possible. Uh, Yes, but again, you're at that point, you're saying... that. Okay, see, this is like watching a gladiator movie and (laughs) Russell Crowe is just hitting the bad dude with his shield. Just whacking him in the head with his shield, whacking him in the head, and hitting him on the side, and, and poking his knees, and whacking, and just when he's about to die because he's being dragged off, he says, oh, look, I'll pull this sword out of its scabbard, and stabity stab it at you. No! <laughs> okay, well, this is where we have to, to keep in mind what exactly do the various characters know at this point in the film. Raleigh has been here for like a day. He does not know about all the upgrades Gypsy has received. He doesn't know that Gypsy now has a sword available, whereas Mako does. And as you can see, and this is something Del Toro had to really explain before it made a whole lot of sense to me, but in retrospect, you know, looking at the way the story was, you know, the way the film was visually presented, it does make a lot of sense that the pilot on the right side of the cockpit, so, you know, to the left if we're looking directly at them, is the dominant pilot, where if you look, you know, that's where Yancey, the older brother, was the dominant pilot. The the father in the Hansons is the dominant pilot. The wife of the Russians, which again, a lot of that background storytelling, you can really recognize she was the dominant pilot. So in the newer version of Gypsy, it's Raleigh that's the dominant pilot. And Mako's role really is just to share the load. Raleigh's doing all the heavy lifting. It's not until Mako specifically steps up to take a more assertive role in the piloting and say, hey, Raleigh, by the way, you know, we have this new weapon that you as the dominant pilot haven't been using because you're not aware of. That's a specific story point in the movie where it does make sense. It does not. It makes Because sense. that should have been explained a hell of a lot more throughout the entire movie then because it's not. It's not. And again, no, I, if- I, I will even say that Until it was explained to me, it didn't make sense. But then once it was looking back, it does make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, but they don't explain that throughout the movie. So the first time watching it until somebody tells you that, you don't know. I'm not not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying I'm I'm, I'm, I'm educating you as to the sense that it does make. Regardless of that, I don't care if you're, you know, she's not taking point on this fight or whatever. The fact that they're getting ripped apart and she knows there's a sword there and she's not doing anything about it until this point. Well, again, as the support pilot, she's just doing her job of letting Raleigh do his job until he reaches a point where he can no longer do his job. It was stupid. I loved it. I don't care. And I said, at some points, I'm perfectly willing to let story go to the wayside for the sake of awesome. 
I no, not no. It was not awesome enough to warrant letting go of everything else. It was no stupid. I don't care if you're crying. I don't care. It was stupid. (laughs) So, so at this point, the movie is pretty much in its final moments after this ridiculous battle where, you know, everything's just kind of wrapping up at this point. We've seen going back to the sports metaphor, you know, the aging superstar is really now stepped up to carry the team, you know, earned the respect of the, the, the young yeah, the young quarterback, if you will. And just using those sports metaphors, it, it works for the sake of the story. But like you said, it, it is a trope that is used in any number of other films as well. Okay, at what point are we now? Has, is, has Luther suited up yet? Yes, Luther is now suiting up because Herc Hansen cannot pilot uh, Striker Eureka any longer. So, okay, it is so now- your, your sports metaphors out the window. There's well, yeah, no the coach sports never with coach never goes back there. into the game. <laughs> well, actually, uh, and there was the one, <laughs> I think it was Major League Three, we kind of had a little bit. Of, yeah. Now that I'm tells you cool. something. I'm going a little far off track at this point. <laughs> but we have uh, you know, the, the, the closing action sequence, which it was, it was nifty because it was you know, this fully underwater battle, but against the counterpoint of the absolute epicness that was the battle for Hong Kong, the, you know, the, the fight at the breach was not as much of a spectacle. It was boring. It was boring, confusing. It was not nearly as well choreographed. And once again, cliched as all hell with the, we'll take one for the team and blowing themselves up so that the others can go through the hole. Yeah, I, the, the the end of the movie was not very spectacular because, like I said, the, the high point of the film is you know a little past halfway through. And the ending sequence, it, it was what it was. It tied up the story. And then, but, and then the whole bit with the breach. <laughs> the whole thing where they got to drag a carcass in with them because it's, it recognizes DNA, which yeah, sure. they're all right, fine, fine, fine. But... They don't like wear it like a suit or something, like a meat puppet. <laughs> they, it, it's tossed in like before them or whatever. They, they kind of, well, they fall in with one. But they wind up going. There's scenes where you see them falling. There's no carcass close to them. And well, then I, I think once they've been let in, they're, they're kind of you know, allowed. And apparently it lets them back out again without a meat puppet either. So, yeah. Well, once they've gone through the breach, now, first of all, the breach hadn't closed yet, so traveling back through is possible, but also the lock on the breach, if you will, is probably only one side. It's only meant as an incursion tool, not a potential, you know, counterattack point. There's there's any number of reasons you come up with why they can get out, no problem. But there's any number of reasons why you can come up with. Well, there there you go. If if you take the time to approach the film logically, a number of things do make sense within Ah, its internal logic. I see. I understand. You're just you're just not putting the time and effort into I, it. I did not. I yeah, I'm very certainly did not. <laughs> but uh, we've talked so much about you know the camera shots and you know all the cinematography and you know various things. There's one major component uh, to this film that really drew it all together for me, and they said it was part of that immersion, and that is the musical score uh, by Raman Djawadi, uh, best known for uh, a lot of his work on Game of Thrones, including you know the, the famous you know, opening uh, credit scene, and his score that was just ridiculous, like through the action scenes, like 
that oh i i had goosebumps literally i'm not joking i had goosebumps at the end of the battle for hong kong not just because of you know the visuals but the music was amazing mhm mhm you're not going to get much more sadly okay. because i yes it was good but because i was not as heavily invested in the whole of it a lot of it wound up being forgettable because i was not wrapped up in the moment Okay. Which is sad when you're looking at something that's that good that but that's the effect that it has on you when you're mm-hmm. you're not involved. So we we can go point counterpoint about this film, you know, until the end of time and it's just we are never going to agree on this and can you okay. tell me one thing? Yes. Why did they send an entire fleet of choppers for two people at Why the not? very end? Okay. All those other people had to do something. Entire fleet and she can swim with that big ass metal outfit too. It was plastic. It was not. It's the future, Roger. It's plastic. Between that and the fleet of helicopters, that's where my son clocked out. <laughs> it was like, really? <laughs> that's it. <laughs> it's the future. <laughs> it's not that far in the future. There's no hoverboards. <laughs> this is like 2020. <laughs> uh, 2027, I believe. Oh, is, uh, yeah, by that there. time, yeah. yeah. But still, there's no hoverboards. <laughs> that you saw maybe they would have invented hoverboards there the would have been a had an attack bunch of people on them pushing to get the hell away from them. <laughs> but yeah th- this is one of those movies where a lot of people really enjoyed the film purely as you know a a summer blockbuster if you will you know they didn't care about you know any of the story aspects they didn't want to even look into them and they every Everybody I know, you are now the second person I know who <laughs> legitimately did not like the movie. Oh, and see, that's taken a little bit far. I, to me, if I say I did not like something, then it was like it was really terrible. I'm not going to say I like this per se, but there is an in between there. There's a lot of you know in between room there, wiggle room to still watch a movie and not feel like I've wasted two hours of my life. I didn't. There were aspects of it. That I did really like, but there were a lot of aspects that I was super critical of because I could, you know, I wasn't invested. So I was like picking apart everything. And in some cases I feel justifiably so, but the the fact is, is again, I'm not going to say this was a terrible movie. Don't watch it. If someone is looking for something completely idiotic, that's just a blockbuster. Yeah, go ahead and watch it, but try not to, you know, there's, there's, there's parts you may not like. So, and and that's where you know a lot of it comes to the audience because you know people like myself who who have you know this incredible respect for a lot of the kaiju film and a lot of people I've talked to who share a lot of that same did legitimately love this film for a lot of the same reasons I did and I'm not saying that I'm going to go around and convince everybody of you know all the phenomenal things that you know they did either didn't notice or didn't care about because that's irrelevant but you got a lot of interesting stuff as far as the actual audience like this was actually one of the top 10 movies of the summer and as del toro was very proud to point out it was the only one in the top 10 that was not a sequel or did not feature you know a major star as its tentpole and that is an accomplishment because that's something that doesn't happen you're either a sequel or you're something like you know world war z which was an awful movie but it had brad pitt in it so everybody went to go see it because brad pitt with this movie did not have either of that i mean 
Idris Elba is really the, the, the leading, yeah. you know, the, the highest profile actor here. And that he, as much as we love him, he's not selling a lot of movie tickets in America. And it's even though it was a top 10 film for the summer, it's still considered an absolute failure by American standards because in the American box office, it only made $100 million versus its budget of 190 Now, what a lot of people don't point out is outside of America, it made $300 million. So it more than made its budget back in, in international sales. But movie studios only care about international numbers when you're in that Dark Knight Avengers $1 billion range. Avengers didn't make a billion dollars in America. It made a billion dollars worldwide. But – if you ask me about Pacific Rim, they're like, oh, yeah, it did 100 million. It's, it, I, I'm not getting into all that. But it is interesting to point out that this movie did have an incredible interest outside of America, which you don't see a lot of films having because a, a lot of, especially in, in the East, a lot of audiences really did catch on to this film to the point where this film is Warner Brothers' highest grossing movie ever in China. And that is a major market a number of studios have been trying to move into. And I'm not you know, jumping up on you know, rooftops saying this movie needs a sequel. Isn't that – I would like to see a sequel. It, Del Toro would like to see a sequel. Well, he said, yeah, we've, we started on script treatments, but yeah. we're nowhere near even having a deal with a movie studio. But having a film that really does capture even a small audience, if it's that small audience worldwide, it is very impressive to me. It is, but – you can see how the movie was scripted with that in mind. I read a phenomenal write-up that spoke of that and all uh, a whole bunch of deficiencies in the movie that we see as deficiencies are because of how it was written with worldwide release and appeal, worldwide appeal. And that really changes how you write a movie in a, a, mm-hmm. a variety of different ways. And unfortunately for that, that also winds up taking away so much of what it could have been because they don't want to offend or they want to be able to appeal to a greater audience or different things like that. Or to the point of having a lot of bland dialogue simply because it's easier to then dub for worldwide release. So there's a lot of things that. Yeah, it's great and it added to a lot of sales, but it also held the movie back in a lot of different ways. And in terms of what you were saying about the people who appreciate kaiju movies and how this appealed to them. Uh, and one of the things that I would say to that, and which isn't to take away from how a person enjoyed this, because, again, I, I, I write. I love that people can get that excited about any creative endeavor. I, I absolutely love that. And I understand that it's subjective. Everybody's going to have different opinions. And I respect that. That's why I don't try to convince people that they should have the same opinion as me. So, but I wonder if part of the reason why it was so highly regarded by people who are huge fans of such types of movies is simply because there hasn't been enough of it of this scope, this, this grandeur and this, you know, realism because of by virtue of the special effects and everything that they went through to make it real. So because of that, you're salivating for something like this. So they give you something. And even though it's lacking in so many ways, you still gobble it up and put it up on a pedestal because in comparison, there's not much else. Then explain Godzilla 98. Okay. I'm not going to say it applies to everything, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, but I'm just saying it, it does. It's, it's entirely possible. 
Because I know and, that there's a I, lot I can't of uh, argue against that point. Yeah, like I mean, you could you could put up a really bad Serenity movie, and I will put that thing up on a pedestal like nobody's business. Okay, it will be great. I don't care. Okay, it will be. You could replace. Nathan Filio with Brad Pitt, and it will still be great. Well, no, maybe not. What, seriously? But, <laughs> really? But anyways, you get my point. So it's the same kind of thing where when there's a lull, if there's there's not enough of a certain amount of quality of something, and then something comes out that has a little bit, you know, or phenomenal fight scenes, but everything else sucks, it's still going to be really held up. No, and and I I can definitely accept that, but like I said, a lot of what my particular attachment to this movie comes down to is that you do see Del Toro's sheer love of the genre coming through, and where where so far as you know, in the credits, this movie is actually dedicated to yeah. uh, Ishiro Honda. Who, of course, created Godzilla and any a plethora of other, you know, fantastic sci-fi movies from Japan in the fifties and sixties, as well as uh, Ray Harryhausen, who was a special effects master for a number of years before CGI was even a thing that people could conceptualize, and someone who has such a respect for what came before and tries to build upon the foundation that you know these filmmaking greats ha- have set up for him again on a personal level it's something that i can absolutely appreciate yeah and again it's it's my closing thoughts would be simply that a large part of my disappointment is both in the the again the non fighting aspects of the story elements let's just say mm-hmm. and and how it is it was lacking and then casting different things like that but also a very large portion is in my disappointment in what could have been with this which is in a way is wrong you should base your opinions on a piece on what it is and not what you wish it would have been but you it, it has to be something that's there and it is for me and it is unfortunately nowhere near what i wish it could have been Fair enough. So, you got any parting thoughts? Uh, I think I've said my piece. Fair enough. So, thank you everybody for listening. I was going to rein you in a half hour ago. I said I would, and I knew there was just no way. So, I didn't even bother. (laughs) I tried to be as brief as possible. You did not. You did not. (laughs) You should see my notes. (laughs) Trust me. I believe you. You should see my notes. They're a lot more brief. <laughs> There's big X's everywhere. <laughs> Make sure to join us for our next episode, which is going to be our first anime episode, where we're going to discuss some of our favorite animes, some of them current, some of them over the last couple of years. There's a lot of really amazing stuff. I don't know if you intend on talking about some of the bad stuff as well. Personally, I'm going to stick to stuff that I've really loved and has in some cases even moved me that I've been so engrossed by it. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Like I said, that's going to be in a couple weeks. Make sure to stop by the site, popcornronin.com, and subscribe on iTunes, and we'll talk to you guys in a little while. There was no stopping you. I was not even, I wasn't going to even try. See, as we were going, I was trying to remember, did he say quarter till nine or quarter (laughs) after nine? (laughs) It was going to be 10 to 10 to 9. I'm going to start. <laughs> so to I said at the point, I was like, he must have met quarter after. Okay. I'll just keep talking. <laughs> so you'll fix it in post. Yeah. 
just take out that chunk with the dog and we'll be fine. movie, TV, and anime reviews, please make sure to stop by popcornronin.com and leave the guys your thoughts in the comments. If you'd like to hear more from Roger and Vince, check out their comic book informer podcast and Internet Dragons TV gaming videos. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, manellijamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs. Mm-hmm.